0: Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're gonna be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they wanna celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, Rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over, it's time to live. So the
1: couples who communicated well, who were thoughtful and mindful about this, is an unusual circumstance as it gets. We need to be, you know, not disengage the autopilot and really be thoughtful about what we're doing for the sake of our relationship. Did better. We have the same level of sophistication about our emotional health and how to deal with common emotional wounds like rejection and failure and loneliness as we had about physical health roughly 100 years ago. Find the time to go and surf if that's what you do. Find the time to throw your daughter on the back of the bike and go for a bike ride even if it's half an hour because that makes you feel free and it makes you feel like you and it makes you feel like you're doing the thing you enjoy doing.
0: doing, doing. What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard Play Hard show. Today on the show is Guy Winch. So I am outside in the streets on the beautiful Greek island of Mykonos, running my work hard, play hard mastermind. Today on the show is Dr. Guy Winch. All right, so Dr. Guy is a psychologist. He has a podcast called Dear Therapist that Katie Corrick produces, where him and Lauren Gottlieb uh, field questions as a Two doctors, uh, as imagine two doctors consulting each other over a patient, but listening in live, that's basically what the show is, and it's fascinating. So you gotta check it out. We will link that up in the show notes. But on this episode, we talked about a lot of emotional problems that people are really not getting help with. And especially with this year of the pandemic, there are many, many underlying issues of loneliness, sadness, separation, and how to deal with those things. So you are going to love this episode. I am going to stop talking and let you listen to the master, Dr. Guy Winch. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know what, man, I am super excited to have you here today, because if there is one thing we could all use right now as a great psychologist to help them through the shit show that this year has been, uh, you know, I I bet you're uh, I bet you have been in demands, let's just say, over the last year. I I have been busy. Yes. (laughs) All right. So I think a great place to start would be the fact that you have a twin, which I always find quite interesting because I don't have a twin. And when I look at twins, it's always interesting. I always have all these questions like, you know, is it an identical twin, by the way, or a for identical? Yes. Identical. So, so like dating in high school and stuff, you guys could switch up and nobody would know
1: that actually happened once uh, (laughs) by error uh, earlier on in our lives, but, uh, you know, we've gone in different directions in that way, but, but that happened, it did happen once.
0: Interesting. Could you tell me, uh, the story of when you, uh, for the first time you left your brother and you moved to America and, you know, you, 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 you thought he was going to call you and, and you stayed up and he, he never called, but he, but he really, the phone was off the hook. Tell me that story. It's a fascinating story.
1: Well, what, what happened was I came to the U.S., I came to New York to do my Ph.D. And then we experienced this thing where it was our first birthday and we were going to be apart for the first time. And so there was a time difference. And so I just kind of waited for him to call. And I, I waited and I waited and he just, the phone didn't ring. And I, we'd been apart then for 10 months and I really started to feel, wow, he's kind of moved on a bit or or, or like it just, I'm sure he's thinking about it, but he's probably out with friends and it's probably kind of slipped his mind. And it was a very miserable night. Um, and when I woke up in the morning feeling very miserable, I looked down and this was before cell phones. And I realized I had kicked the phone off the hook in my waiting for him the day before. So he couldn't have gotten through. And then I put the phone back on the hook and it rang immediately. And he was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I was like, uh, I, I just, I tried to explain to him and he's like, but I, I don't get it. You know, you're the closest person in the world to me. If you saw I wasn't calling, why didn't you just call when you me? call me? And and that's when I realized that I was just feeling extraordinarily lonely. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that happens when we're lonely is we get these perceptual distortions. We really start to believe that the people who truly care about us don't care as much. Mm. And we start to believe that the relationships we have aren't that valuable because we're so risk-averse. We're hurting so much. We want to minimize risk. And so like, okay, it doesn't matter. Let's move away. And that's the trap for lonely people, that they are actually in the moment where they need to connect most, are least likely to reach out. And with every moment that you're not reaching out and the other person isn't reading your mind and reaching out to you, you feel like they don't care. When in fact, you haven't reached out, they might be busy, you're not thinking about what's going on with them. You just feel like nobody seems to care. And it was a big wake up call for me.
0: I want to pull on that thread a little bit in terms of the loneliness piece. We are, we've spent the the better part of the last year and a couple of months, quasi isolated in so many different ways. And we are, uh, you know, as humans, we're, we're meant to connect for sure, but we're spending our days disconnecting from each other. And we're doing things like we're doing right now, which is talking on zoom. But if I look and I want to connect with you, I can't, I can't look in your eyes I can look on my computer, I can look at my camera, but I can't look at you. And no matter how how hard I try to look at you, I'm not looking at you. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So how are we, what kind of effects, let's say, are you starting to see from this disconnection? I understand that we're being more connected because physically on social media and blah, blah, blah but I mean, disconnected from people and conversations and, and hugging and kissing and holding hands and, you know, patting somebody on the head. Now, you know, I, I, I see it when I'm, I went out uh, last night to talk to somebody and, you know, they just removed the, uh, the mask rule here a couple of days ago. And, but there's still this, you know, even though they said, you know, we don't have to social distance, people are still social distancing. We've been trained. To do that. So I guess the first part of the question is what kind of effects do you think we're gonna see in the future? And the second part would be how do we get ourselves back to what we once had?
1: I mean, that's a that's a great question. I in April of last year, a month into the pandemic, I wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe about when this pandemic is over, there will be an emotional health mental health pandemic that we're going to have to attend to because it's going to leave a mark and it's going to leave a mark because what has kept people away from one another is anxiety over the pandemic getting close to someone physically was anxiety provoking it was literally dangerous and when you've trained yourself to stay away from that what it does is when it's time to come closer again physically it will bring anxiety with it, and the way we tend to respond to anxiety is to avoid the thing that makes us anxious. We try to avoid, which means that a lot of people, as you said, do not have to social distance, especially if two people are vaccinated. It's not necessary, but they will because they're a little bit afraid. So there is a recovery that's going to have to take place on the individual and the societal level. At this time, the the American Psychological Association in 2017 issued a press release in which they warned that loneliness was at epidemic proportions and constituted a bigger public health crisis than smoking. Mm. And they said that because loneliness is very dangerous. Um, Chronic loneliness has the same impact on our long-term health and longevity, how long we live, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It will kill us if we don't attend to it and we can fall into that now people have been lonely and disconnected as you said over this past year if they remain so if they give if they give into this anxiety if they don't attend to the fact that yes we need to connect in ways that are more than zoom then a lot of people will start really feeling ill physically and mentally and suffering because of it
0: why will loneliness kill us? Why, you know, when I think of smoking, um, I think of smoke coming into a lung and I, I think of the lung uh, having a physical effect. But I don't think, when I think of loneliness, I think of sadness. I think of um, a heaviness. But I don't understand Physically, what it's doing to me. Can you sort of walk me through that? Yeah. So, we are social animals. We evolved
1: living in tribes, truly uh, nomadic tribes. And then, after the agricultural evolution, maybe more stationary tribes. But we could not survive alone. We are not lone predators. We are pack animals. And in that sense, we needed a tribe around us. And the legacy of that evolution is that when we feel disconnected, and I want to actually qualify and explain, that loneliness does not depend at all on how many people are around you or physically in your proximity, whether you live with a partner, with a family. It is solely a subjective experience of disconnection from the people around you, and there may be many of them. So it's actually today, not even just the, oh, I don't have a tribe. You might, but if you don't feel connected to them, you will feel lonely. And when we experience loneliness, our body responds as if it's under assault. When we are lonely, it suppresses the function of our immune system, literally. It causes an inflammatory response. It inhibits a lot of physiological um, activities that need to happen. It increases our risk of cardiovascular disease of all kinds of other illnesses. In one study, college freshmen coming into college were asked if they were lonely or not. And those who are lonely tended to have a much poorer reaction to a flu shot because their immune system wasn't functioning well. And this is coming in a few days in of loneliness. And already their body wasn't responding well. So it, it's a, something that it's, first of all, to me, it's a massive demonstration of the mind-body connection that people need to understand that truly they are related. But loneliness truly has a very big, Physical effect on us, in which we just feel like we are like we are alone and we are in danger, and that's how our body is responding.
0: Okay, you said you said something very interesting a second ago about uh, sort of defining loneliness, and you can be in a room filled with a bunch of people and still feel lonely. If I'm in the room and I've got a uh, let's say I'm at a party and I've got a bunch of people around me at a party, I could still feel lonely why? That's the question. Because if you feel, um, and this happens to a lot of people who are
1: lonely um, and some who aren't, but if you go to the party and people are talking in groups and in cliques and you feel, well, no one's interested in me, no one's seeing me, you know, I walked into the room, no one turned, or if people turned, they then turned and turned back. I feel invisible. And, And so if you feel that way, in a party, what you are likely to do, and especially if you're lonely, is not to step in, because you're already experiencing a sense of rejection, but to step back. You you will park yourself by the hummus and the vegetable dip with a scowl on your face. That's so scary, no one will indeed approach you. And to you, here's the verification no one cares about me.
0: Uh-huh. That's yeah, what tends I'm- to happen. Yeah. You just gave me a a, a fantastic visu- visual by the hummus and the vegetable dip. I can see that happening. You know, I'll tell you as I'm aging, um, uh, I'll be 55 in a couple of months. And sometimes I look, I look at myself in the mirror and I don't even know who I'm looking at anymore. You know, it's, it's not the guy that I, I remember in my head, you know, and you know, I should be so lucky by the way. And when
1: I say that, I mean, that it's too late. I'm Past that age, but please go. On.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can see as I've gotten older, you know, there's a, there's more of a feeling of uh, feeling invisible when I walk into a room, you know, not that I was, you know, this young, uh, handsome, strapping young man that turned every room in the, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there was I don't know, more attention, more focus when I was younger. And now, you know, I, I, I can feel invisible at times and it does not feel good. It, it actually triggers me to want to, you know, do things like, you know, chasing, chasing youth more or, you know, working out harder or, you know, those kinds of things to get that. So I, I, I suppose it comes in all forms, loneliness. It's not just I'm alone in my apartment and nobody's here and I have nobody to talk to, but it's more of the things that you've said where you, you know, you could be lonely in a room full of people. And, you know, on the other hand, I have uh, my mom, uh, we lost my dad a couple of years ago to cancer and she's alone, you know, she's in New York and she's by herself and it it's uh, it's incredibly painful for me to imagine her alone. You know, all the kids are grown and and they're all they've moved on to different states and we come in, you know, for the holidays. And, and then with COVID, couldn't come in. She couldn't leave. And I can hear the pain in her voice, you know, where she's just like her days are so long and it's just, you know, terribly lonely. How do you advise somebody, you know, either in my shoes as the as the child, of somebody that is witnessing loneliness of a parent or even the parent, you know, what advice could I give her to help her through this? Because I know she's feeling it. So, but there are two things you actually mentioned there. I just want to quickly
1: label the first one, which is you walking into the room and and that's ageism. And there's massive ageism in our society, unfortunately, in which we tend to value youth, uh, which is fine if you want to value youth for its vigor, for its physicality. Um, but we don't then value older people for their wisdom, for their life experience, um, for what they can, for their mentorship. Um, we don't, which is very unfortunate. Um, and so age, ageism is something that everyone faces as you grow older. And I always try and explain this to younger people like, when you grow older, the only reminder of your age is a mirror. You do not feel different. You still feel very much as you did when you were 30, when you were 20. Nothing changes except an outward appearance. And the shame of that is that, yes, the mirror reminds you that you're growing older. It reminds other people that somehow you're less worthy of attention, of recognition. And that's the problem with ageism. And and ageism, ageism, the the last thing I'll say about it is it's the most unfortunate thing because it is the one bias we are all going to encounter.
0: 100%. no
1: one who's, if you're dead, you won't. But anyone who's actually going to live to be older will experience this. And so you would think, since we're all going to encounter this, we should not have it, and yet we do. But that's ageism. The thing about loneliness, I think, is that's very problematic, is indeed we used to associate loneliness with the elderly. But when you look at studies globally, not just in the US, the elderly are not the most lonely group. Post COVID, it's a maybe, but, but they were not. The loneliest group, 18 to 24 year olds. Wow. Why? Globally. Globally. Because loneliness is also a comparative experience, it's a gap between the expected or preferred amount of social contact and what you actually have in life. And younger people who have grown up in the age of social media have hundreds of friends and hundreds of followers. And when they're sitting alone in their apartment and no one is calling, that's hundreds of people who don't seem Mm. to care, number one. And number two, when they then go on social media, which is a highly, highly curated medium, what they're seeing is the glory shots, the happy moments of everyone around them. So it seems that everyone's having a great time but them. Now, they do the same thing. They'll only post these very happy moments and they don't realize but that what you see there doesn't actually reflect anything except the image I'm trying to convey in what I'm putting out, which is why some people will take 200 selfies before they find one that you know they can actually live with. Um, but when you forget that, then it just feels like everyone has an amazing life but me. and Everyone's doing great right now but me. The other thing I quickly want to say about loneliness and the pandemic is that because it's about connection, we're seeing a huge percentage of lonely people who are married, because what happens when we're all under stress, which we were and still are, is that conversation becomes very transactional. Did you Did you get the milk? Did you pay the bill? Did you do? It's not connective, you know. And so couples will sit down and they'll say, "Oh, but we spend all this time together. We binge this series," and I'm like terrific. Do you talk about it or do you just watch it passively? There is a little bit, but very too little connective about watching something passively. If after each episode, you pause and talk about what you liked and what you thought and what you felt and what you think is going to happen, then you're actually connecting. But couples don't. And and that's if they actually get it together to binge something together. Typically, they'll just be each on their own screen and their own device and they're not even connecting. And so it feels and if you just visually take a snapshot, they're not sitting next to each other on the couch. They're in the armchair, if, or they're on other ends of the couch, if they're in the same room at all. And what I say to people is like, if you feel that, I can promise you two things. Number one, your spouse is likely feeling it too, not always, but probably feeling it too. And number two, they might not be aware of it, or they might be as hesitant as you to reach out because, you know, it's just like my story with my twin brother, who's the closest person to me in the world. Um, when you feel that way, you assume the other person doesn't really care or they're not interested in me anymore, or they're preoccupied, they're not really seeing me, and then you don't reach out to them. And so I say, so if you feel that, the next time you're watching something or doing your separate screens, scooch up to them on the couch and say, you know, take their hand and say, let's watch something together. Now, they're going to look at you very suspicious because... Did you crash the car? Is that what happened? What happened? Did you buy or, something? You or I know
0: he wants to get laid tonight. Yeah, something's <laughs> going on. Some ulterior agenda that's going
1: on. But the getting laid is a very good example of something, you know, like, like somebody might think he wants to get laid tonight. And sometimes, you know, the opposite. She wants to get laid tonight. But that means that's doing it for something of their needs, not mine. That still doesn't make you feel seen in some kind of way and so you and you have to say like no we used to do this a lot let's do that again let's go for a walk and just talk let's have a non-screen evening which by the way when i suggest that to couples the look of panic on their faces and i'm suggesting it to both when i'm doing couples therapy the look of panic on both their faces of like what do you mean no screens at all and i'm like what do we do Yes, that used to be something that happened. No screens at all. What will you do? Maybe you do go for a walk. Maybe, oh, you just have to talk and connect and ask each other questions. Um, but but yes, that's how disconnection happens. You just stop having meaningful conversations with one another. And then you drift. And then you do a lot of assuming and mind reading like, oh, I know they think this. And I know they think that without asking. And the disconnect is there.
0: And now... This is fascinating how has the pandemic affected couples in other words you know there was a it was a, a a friend of mine i had dinner with him and his wife not that long ago and i said that you know you guys you guys have been married for all these years they've been married like 35 years and i said uh, but he, he's always gone he travels all the time is that hard on the relationship? She said, how the hell do you think we've been married for 35 years? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but now the reverse of that is true, which is they're not traveling and they're home. So how has, I'm trying to bridge or connect this sort of transactional notion that you just mentioned into quarantine. And does that accelerate the transactional? Uh, relationship, or does it, or, or does it force couples to talk to each other more because they're around each other more? So, so here's the good news about that: it can do either,
1: depending on what the couple does. We all have the power, to the ability, to choose the healthier path when it comes to our mental health and our emotional health. What we often don't have is awareness, the knowledge, the wherewithal the mindfulness, the communication skills to implement those kinds of things. And so couples who've been thoughtful about, hey, you used to travel a lot, which was great because that meant that we were very actually intentional when you were here about what we're doing, which couples wouldn't be if they see each other all the time. They're kind of It just slides into autopilot. But if someone's traveling, then, then let's make plans for when you're here. Let's do this when you're back. So there's a utility to it. Um, but Couples need to be intentional. Those couples, and there were many who were intentional, were like, we're trapped in the house with one another. Let's figure out how we don't end up hating each other. How do we gain space from one another? How do we retain the sense of like that we have a life? I just spoke to a couple uh, yesterday, to to a friend of mine actually yesterday, and she said that she and her husband... Would put um, you know like alcohol in like flasks like prohibition and these young people, um, but they would take five-hour walks in the city during the first days of the pandemic in New York City when the city was quite empty in the streets. But they would just during the day they need they needed the exercise and they would just take walks and chat along the way and it was incredibly healthy for them as a couple. They really uh, connected, of course the question any New Yorker would have is really five hour walks during the pandemic. Where'd you pee? Anyway, right. But um, that's <laughs> right. That's uh, a, a good question. Between park, and between and park how park mu- how much alcohol do you have in the flask? <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of details to be had there, but, <laughs> yeah. but my, my point about they were actually very thoughtful mm. about what they were doing. They were thought about we need to figure out something for individual emotional health, for our, for our relationship. I, advocated right at the beginning for couples, but this truly any relationship who are stuck in a house together to have regular talks. And by regular, I mean daily, weekly. How are we doing? What's working? What's not working? To communicate very, very clearly. And I call it over-communicating because most people think it's not necessary to to communicate this much, but it is an unusual circumstance about when are you going to be busy? When can I expect you to be free so we can talk when I expect you to be working, you know, when, you know, what who uses what room, how do I communicate to you if I need some space from you, et cetera. And so the couples who communicated well, who were thoughtful and mindful about this is an unusual circumstance as it gets, we need to be, you know, not disengage the autopilot and really be thoughtful about what we're doing for the sake of our relationship, did better. And the ones that just let things be, some did well, some did not.
0: Yeah, you know, you really uh, you hit me between the eyes with the transactional piece, Uh, and I think a lot of people listening to this would probably agree with that. Uh, Particularly when you uh, have—I'm not blaming it on this—but particularly when you have small children, I'm going through in my mind my communication with my wife, and a lot of it is, if I'm honest, a lot of it is transactional. And it's—did you get the dry cleaning? Did you do the thing? Did you pick up the kids? Did you? And It does not, at the end of the day, it does not lead to a natural connection. It doesn't lead to a ramp up of uh, flirting that leads into sex. And even sex can be, you know, quite transactional. It becomes biological, you know, it's, it's been, it's been three, four days, five days, whatever it is, you know, and you, you, you do whatever, whatever it is that you, whatever cue you have to say, Hey, let's do it. But, but even that can be transactional. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking like in the, in the midst of the craziness of my day and, and her day, frankly, how does one reduce that transactional nature to make it less transactional and more conversational and more connected, like in real life, you know, in the, the shit show of, you know, did you get the kid on zoom? Yeah. She's on zoom school. Yeah. We we got that. We got, we're going to Greece. Did you, did you pack the thing? You know what I mean? It's the, the craziness and the reality of a busy, and for this, the listener of this show is more entrepreneurially minded, but the busy entrepreneur who's trying to slay the dragons, you know, how do you help them? So first of all, I do want to make a point here. Um, Transactional
1: sex between couples is better than no sex between couples. So let's just be clear because it's still, it's still, even connection. if it's transactional, well, yes, but it's not just a connection. It's conveying, I'm still into you. Um, I still enjoy the physicality with you. Or it could be, uh, I'm not necessarily in the mood, but I care enough to, you know, I'm, I'm game because no, it's rare to both be in the mood at the same time, especially under stress. There's something, you know, it, it's always better to do that than just to drift and be like, oh, we're both not in the mood, we're both stressed. So, so I do think, you know, it's not great, but it's way better than a lot of the options um, yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Um, couples with younger children have this challenge regularly. And if if the listeners are entrepreneurial and they are, you know, then, then they have a double whammy if they have young kids. Because they have two super preoccupying things that you could spend your entire waking hours worrying about or obsessing about or, you know, and... If you do, then you lose yourself and you lose your couplehood, because then where are you? Where are your individual needs? Where are your needs as a couple? Where is the time? I mean, couples have to find time where they're not parents. And when you have young kids, that's difficult time to find. But it's actually really important. Certainly when you have older kids, I mean, really, the worries don't stop. But but, but the idea is when are you not a parent? And I work with so many couples who just they're either a working person or a parent, all their waking hours. They're never just them. And just yeah. them means this, just them means like, what's a passion you have that you can engage in, even if it's an hour a week, but something that makes you feel like you, you know, like I'm seeing
0: the pictures of the motorcycle, um, that a motorcycle, I think behind, um, like if, if, if you ride a, that a bike, that's a bicycle with a, that's a, That's my daughter and I, we live on the beach. We live in Hermosa beach here in LA. So we jump on the bicycle. I put her on and we go down. uh, I I surf.
1: Great. Excellent. So surfing is a great example. A lot of people during the pandemic were, you know, I don't know, or entrepreneurs who are very, very busy and every minute can be, you know, busy doing something. Find the time to go and surf. If that's what you do, find the time to throw your daughter on the back of the bike and go for a bike ride. Even if it's half an hour because that makes you feel free. And it makes you feel like you, and it makes you feel like you're doing the thing you enjoy doing, not the thing you have to do or obliged to do or feel stressed to do. Those things are very important. And the same thing goes for couples. Find the activities, find the time to carve out where you can be a couple. You talked about like seduction. It's so, so important. And couples lose sight of that. Like, Yeah, I know what you look like in every form. You don't need to like make an effort. First of all, men are often very visual and that effort is something that's important to them. And many women are like that as well. They want their their man to be, to look a certain way, to look good. They want to feel tempted, you know, in some kind of way. And I often said to couples during the pandemic, you can put the kids to sleep or, you know, uh, somewhere, Um, get dressed up, go up on the roof and have a drink together. If you can't go anywhere else, go out to the balcony, but get dressed up because that'll make you feel like we're going out, like we're, and when you go out, you try and look good. So like, do that even in the pandemic. And in the pandemic, we were all like, no one had anything on, but like slippers and shorts. and 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 sweats, and then sometimes from the, I'll admit, there were talks I gave with a suit above the waist. And shorts. And shorts and, you know, barefoot below the waist. And yeah. because, you know, and did that make me feel like I usually do in a suit? No, because I'm wearing no. shorts. Every time I look down, there are my legs. So no, it didn't. But, but, you know, our clothes make us feel a certain way. So dress up in something that makes you feel sexy, that makes your partner feel sexy and remind yourselves of that dynamic. Um, these are actions you can take. Again, it requires intentionality. It requires the, the awareness and the communication with the other person to set up, but it's very important to do.
0: Have you heard of um John Gottman and or Chloe Madonnas? Yes, of course. You ha- you've heard of both of them. Okay. Yeah, of course. What's your thoughts on, let's start with Gottman. What's your thoughts on uh on his work?
1: Um the Gottman Institute, because it's it's him, it's his wife, they have an institute, um, is the it's it's the place where research about couples um is is really amazing. They've been doing it for 40 years, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research that has come out of that institute has set foundations for the entire field of couples therapy. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a couples therapist. Um, Got it. They're the ones that found that if you train people, um, and couples therapists are trained, to watch a five minute argument between a couple the couple's therapist will be able to predict with upwards of 94% accuracy, whether that couple is going to get divorced by watching a few minutes of an interaction. And so they, they've, they, they have many, many, uh, research findings. Um, but they're the premier, uh, place for that. And so I have nothing but admiration. Great. Oops. Great. I've got them coming We've up on them's... the show.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're coming up on the show next. I ran into them, uh, ironically in an airport, uh, yeah. in Boston. And uh, we connected and they're coming on. The second to that, I did a, um, an Anthony Robbins, a Tony Robbins event. And I met a, uh, uh, a lovely woman named Chloe Madonis and she did a, a presentation there uh, for couples uh, as well. So I'm, I'm glad that both of those names are, are, uh, are, are great in the fields. Why, <laughs> when I go out to dinner, if I hear a couple next to me that's fighting, all I wanna do is leave the restaurant. Do you know what I mean? It's so uncomfortable. When, I, when I'm with friends and I could see that, you know, one, one person says something and, the, other, and the, 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 the spouse recoils and, you know, there's the sort of contempt of you always do that. And it's so, like, all I want to do is crawl out, you know, out of my body and leave the room. The thought that you made a conscious decision to choose this kind of work is so perplexing to me. Why do you enjoy this?
1: Now, are you referring to couples therapy specifically or therapy in
0: general? No, No, individual therapy, I feel like would be wonderful to have a conversation, but couples, you have two. You got two of them in the room, you know, and this one thinks she's right and he thinks he's right and you've got to figure it out. That just seems so hard to me. Look, Yes, it's not easy, but
1: um, it is, first of all, it's very, very liberating as a therapist, because if you compare individual therapy, which is a much, uh, I mean, I'm quite active as a therapist, I will, you know, I I, I give suggestions, I do psychoeducation, I'll give homework, but in couples therapy, you you are controlling the session, in essence, you have the freedom to say, no, no, stop talking. Stop interrupting. Let her finish, or you have the freedom to literally get up and do something. We use props all the time. It is a much more active, and a fun, truly for the therapist more than for the couple. But but fun, uh, uh, fun, fun way to engage because you can get stuff done really quickly and very, very, um, you know, in, in a very blunt way. You can literally have a couple come in and change their relationship in an hour by changing the frame of how they see their relationship. You give them an entirely different way of thinking about what's going on, which suddenly makes them look at everything in a very different light. And it's very, very powerful. And so the impact you have is much more visible. When you do individual therapy, somebody's coming in, they're anxious, they're depressed, they have issues at work. You, they'll come back and tell you that, oh, yes, they're feeling better or they're. But it's rare that in the moment, you know, even if you give them a great insight and they feel a little freer for it, it doesn't, That you know, they then have to go home and make sure that happens or that change happens. With a couple, you see it happen before your eyes. So it's immensely satisfying uh, when that happens and when that works. And it requires a much more active, on it kind of uh, engagement from the therapist, which I find to be very compelling and fun and, and, and engaging and exciting in that way.
0: Can you give me an example of how in the past you've changed a frame with a couple and right before your eyes, they're like, oh my God, lights, the, the lights, the lights just came on. I got it. Does anything come to mind for you?
1: There are many examples. Uh, I mean, Really, if you want, if you want to give me just a snapshot of a problem, and I can, I'll tell you how you can might change the frame just now in real time. But just give me like a if you want, or I can just come up with an example. But if you want to try that, give me yeah. an example of a, something a couple would be struggling with, and how I might change their perspective of that. And then I'll tell well, you how I change the perspective of that.
0: Okay, I would give. I'll give you a real life example. I um I probably want to have sex three times the amount that she does. It's not that she doesn't want to, but it's probably three times the amount I would say. So, you know, she kind of like looks at me and she's like, Oh my God, again, it's like, you know, that kind of thing. And so I don't want to always be initiating because I know, you know, I kind of know how many times she wants to do it over the course of a given, you know, period of time and baked within that would be, That at the end of a day, let's call it nine o'clock when the baby goes to bed, we're both having, you know, uh, gotten up at 6 a.m. by the time 9 p.m. comes around and everything in the day between business and working out and running around with the kids, blah, blah, blah. We're both like, you know, falling asleep, watching TV. And so it becomes this non romantic, not having sex as much. And then when we talk about it, you know, we've talked about it a lot and you know, what comes up is I'm just exhausted, you know, by the end of the day. And I like, you know, unless we're gonna, you know, try and cause the kid's home all day with zoom school. So it's not like we, you know, could even, you know, sneak it in in the afternoon, let's say. So, but then she also said, you know, I, I I can use a little bit of romance too. The more romance I have, the more interested I'd be in doing it. So we're in this sort of like loop. And so uh, you get the idea.
1: Right. So I'm just going to generalize this a bit, but here you are seemingly with opposing needs. Her Mm -hmm. need after the long day is for peace and quiet. Yep. Um, And your need after the long day is to, you know, have sex and kind of feel the good of that and feel the connection of that and and kind of get, you know, get uh, an, a, a catharsis from that emotionally, even. But what that happens, but what that does for couples is it creates this tension point. Uh, and you like, and you're like, I don't want to be the one initiating all the time. She has the fear that if I initiate on Monday, he's going to want to have sex on Tuesday because he hasn't initiated for three days. And then suddenly I'm like, but I don't want to do it for two days. So I'm risking setting myself up to then having to say maybe no, or having to do it when I'm really not in the mood to do it. Number one. That's number right. two. You have a story, and this is what I would change for you guys, about we can't have sex during the day. The kid's on Zoom school. This is what I would change for you guys. This is a very specific thing, but just as an example of it. Um, To me, well, there is a creative challenge. Because the challenge is, yes, much easier to have sex during the day when we both have some energy left. But how do we do it really discreetly? How do we kind of wink to each other and do it in a naughty way? So. That we, it's going to have to be in the stairwell or we go up to the roof. I'm not sort of a suggestion, or we go up to the roof or we pretend that something broke in the laundry machine. And so you have to get the toolkit out and you say to the, to the kid, um, we're going to be there fixing the things. So if you hear any banging, <laughs> 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 but you know what I'm saying? In other words, you, you will have to come up with together ruses and distractions and look at the birdie and all of this, which could actually make sex much more exciting than the mundane, well, it's late, we're exhausted, at least let's get it over with quickly. And so the challenge there would be, make it exciting because you're sticking to the, we can't during during the day, which is not true. We can only do it at night where either you're not in the mood or we're both kind of tired, which is also not true. Um, so, so break that perspective. And see it now as now we have a real challenge here. Let's see, even I would suggest you and your wife have a competition who can come up with the most creative way to find that time to have sex you know, with the door locked so that, you know, even if the kid mm-hmm. wants to come in, hey, what's that noise? We're fixing the washing machine. will wash be done machine. in roughly two <laughs> to three minutes. You know, like, well, um, I'm just kidding? using this. I'm seven, average. seven seconds,
0: but yeah, I <laughs> no, got gotcha. no, <laughs> you. Know I understand.
1: But yeah, so that, if you turn it into a challenge of creativity and communication, even a little competition and gamifying, suddenly it becomes, oh, that's going to be fun.
0: That's great. That's, that's super, super helpful. Thank you for that. You wrote uh, a book, uh, Emotional First Aid, Healing, Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. Why?
1: Because we
0: have the same level of sophistication
1: about our emotional health and how to deal with common emotional wounds, like rejection and failure and loneliness, as we had about physical health roughly 100 years ago. We are not aware, you know, more so truly after the pandemic. But we generally, if you get a cut on your arm, most people can look at that cut and know, doesn't need a a Band-Aid or "Eh, maybe a stitch or let's go to the emergency room right now because this is bleeding out. We can tell literally like what is the triage that would be required for that cut and we should cover it so it doesn't get infected and all of that. Rejections are the common cuts of daily life. And we can't tell why we're hurting when we feel rejected. Because oftentimes you will find out that two colleagues who you do not like, but sit next to you in the office went to lunch without you and you'll feel really rejected and left out, even though you don't like these people. So why does that sting so much? For example, and there's a reason for why we'll get to it, but, but, uh, or, Somebody who's been on a, you know, is swiping on the apps to find a date and they swipe on 10 people and one of them, you know, responds and they have one or two text exchanges and they're kind of like, oh, this seems like an interesting person. And then the person disappears and they feel really criticized and start thinking about, I'm just not good looking enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. From somebody they've never met in person, who have a thousand reasons why that person is not available at this very moment, but they will ignore all of the other interpretations and go with, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I have all these shortcomings. We do those things all the time. When we fail at something, we often get discouraged to continue doing the thing. I've worked with entrepreneurs who, who after one failure... um, didn't want to deal with entrepreneurship, when it's very rare your first endeavor is going to go well, it takes many to succeed. And this is true of almost every successful entrepreneur, which they even know in their head. And yet that one failure stung so bad, demoralized them so badly, made them lose faith in themselves so badly that they had trouble moving on or that they moved on in a very half-assed way, which is actually going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and they're going to fail again. These are very common experiences because they leave an emotional wound. And there are ways, scientifically established ways to address these wounds so that they don't become infected, so that we can soothe the pain, so that we can get over the impact of cognitively and how they impact our executive functioning. And yet most people are, by most people, I mean the vast majority of people are not aware that it's, don't classify that as an emotional wound. Don't think that there's something that has to be tended to restore your faith in yourself, to restore your confidence, to restore your motivation, to restore your hope. There are steps you can actually take. There are active steps. People aren't aware of what they are. And I wanted to write a book to say, no, 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 no. You don't have to rush to a therapist. This is your first aid kit.
0: Do this first. Love
1: and if it doesn't
0: this. work, then rush to I love, I love this because, you, like you, like you use the example. There's, there's no clear, visible thing for you to look at. It's just an internal thing. But understanding those internal things will could quite literally change the entire trajectory of your life because if one entrepreneur failure. Um, does you in, then, you know, you're back to bagging groceries when you could be your third, if if you deal with the emotional part of this, your third uh, attempt at creating a business could be the one that changes your life entirely. So why not treat it in the same way that you would treat a physical cut? I love that. You also wrote a book called uh, how to fix a broken heart. And you've addressed in that book, the loss of a pet. Um, And uh, it was kind of timely for me because last week, uh, have a little, uh, Maltese, uh, a little Maltese poodle and uh, she's, uh, she's going to be 15 this year. And, cool. you know, they, they live about 14 years. So she's, we got an extra year, uh, but you know, she's, she was doing great. And we went to the vet and cause we noticed that she had a little shaky leg. And he said, you know, she's uh, her heart's enlarged and maybe she's got maybe a year, six mm-hmm. months, a year or something like that. Um, and it was just like, it was, I had never felt like I hadn't even like she's young and in my mind playful and never, ever even thought about like, you know, really thought about, you know, her loss um, or losing her. And it was really heavy. I mean, I went to the gym that afternoon and I just like, I was literally, I'm doing bicep curls and crying and I'm just feeling this intense pain. Um, so how does one deal with that?
1: So first of all, I wrote that book and it it covers two things. It covers pet loss and romantic heartbreak. And people always say, really? Because that's a weird combination. I'm like, here's not what, here's what unifies those two things. These are very common experiences that people have that elicit an authentic grief response, which in many cases is as intense as losing a first degree relative. And yet it's completely unsanctioned by society. It's disenfranchised. No one, no one goes to work and says to their boss, "Um, I need a week off, my cat died. It's not a career move you want to make. And no one past the age of truly 18 goes to work and says, my girlfriend dumped me, so I'll be crying in the bathroom all day. You don't do that. Albeit, you might be entirely devastated. So it was important for me to talk about the science, about the science tells us these are can be, not for all, but can be intense, intense grief responses. And therefore, we have to treat it like ordinary grief. But in ordinary grief, you have community rituals. You have people around you. You have emotional support. You have an understanding that, oh, you've lost a very important family member, a first-degree relative. When your pet dies, people will look at you and go, you know, the dog was, as you said, 15, they live till they're 14, you got an extra year, so whatever. You know, like, people have less sympathy, and when an adult who's, who's who's 50, which encountered a lot, or 60, or 70, you know, gets dumped by their girlfriend or boyfriend, they experience it the same as they would as 18, but everyone looks at them like, really, you're an adult now, you shouldn't, shouldn't react that way, which is just complete bullshit. And so there are steps you need to take. With pet loss comes one very unfortunate um, Ingredient, which is massive guilt, because pets cannot communicate to us if they're in distress or you know these kinds of things. At least you are forewarned that there's nothing you can't, that nothing you can do that's going to keep you know uh, your your dog alive for much longer. But most people don't get that forewarning. They don't get the shaky leg, which tells them this is coming, and so they feel like I, I missed something, you know. And certainly, if the dog was younger. And dogs die at younger uh, ages like humans do for all kinds of causes. Humans can say, "Ah, I'm not feeling well." Da, da, da. Dogs can't communicate that. They just, you know, feel a little, you know, more subdued, or they don't, you know, eat great, and that can be for all kinds of reasons. And so there's guilt that comes, which compounds um, uh, the loss. And then you don't get social support. You can say it to friends, and they'll go, "Oh, I'm sorry." Try saying it a week later. I'm still really upset about my pet, and they'll be like, "Dude, grow up." move on said, yeah you would, ne- you would never say that to somebody who lost a parent it's been a week I'm still very upset dude grow up you would never but for some people and in the book I give an example of a man who lost both parents and then the dog and the dog was way more devastating for all kinds of reasons um he, and that's the one that was hardest for him that's the one for which he got zero support so oh. so you you have to recognize that getting emotional support is important and going through common experience you know stations of grief and I don't mean the five You know, like stages of grief. I mean, things like um, dealing with uh, with the voids that that leads in your life. You have a dog. You take the dog out. It suddenly becomes a social thing. You walk in the dog. No one knows who you are, but they do know who your dog is. Usually, is what happens. And everyone's thrilled to see the dog. And again, you forget their name, but their dog. You know, etc. You lose that piece of the identity. You lose a very structured aspect of your life, which is take out dog, feed dog, play with dog. You use the, you know, with dogs and with cats, you lose the tactile comfort that they provide. What's making up for that? Or at least are you aware that now that's something that that's a void that was left? And and so we have to start filling those voids, being mindful of them. There are all kinds of things we need to do to recover, but it starts with legitimizing the fact that yes, it's a recovery. Yes, the pain is Real, it's authentic, and it's meaningful, and it doesn't mean that anything wrong with you for feeling that pet loss um, or romantic heartbreak. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling something that truly anyone who's who's a pet person or you know anyone who's heartbroken feels.
0: Amazing, that's really great advice. Um, Okay, as we uh, wrap, I have a couple of uh, questions I want to ask you. That'll They'll be. Uh, they'll probably feel like they're coming from left fields, uh, but just roll with it. But first, I want to say your podcast is produced by Katie Corrick. How cool is that? First of all, and second of all, what's it like working with her?
1: So she's the uh, she's our we call her our podcast fairy godmother because she's she's the one that she's the one that that suggested the podcast. So it was she's the one that kind of. I had the idea. She she went, my co-host is Lori Gottlieb, and she's the one that said to Lori, hey, we should do something. Well, I just want to say why our podcast is kind of unique. Laurie writes the advice column for The Atlantic. I write an advice column for Ted. And so we're both advice columnists. And, and Katie Klorik was like, let's do an advice podcast. There are several advice podcasts out there. But Lori and I are both therapists. And so here's what we do. Every week in each episode, one of us brings a letter from a reader to the other. And we read the letter. So far, standard uh, advice podcast. Then we do a case consultation as therapists, and you get to be a fly on the wall and hear a very short segment about what therapists think when we hear a presentation like this. Then we bring in the guest and do a therapy session with them that you get to hear. So you get to hear a live therapy session conjoined with two therapists. Um, the challenge for us is we don't discuss the cases. Mm. So we're trying to work together when I don't know what she's thinking about where this needs to go and she doesn't know what I'm thinking about where this needs to go, but we need to figure that out in real time with that person as we're doing this therapy session. And most people have never heard a therapy session except on TV. Sure. Um, and now you really get to hear what happens in one. At the end of that therapy session, we give the guest actionable advice they have to do within a week. And then we get to hear back from them about what happened when they did it. And then we do a final therapy wrap up as therapists, like what, you know, what we think uh, is going on there. Um, And so you get a really complete arc, but it's our way of democratizing therapy, number one, so everyone can hear it. And there are many, many takeaways throughout the episodes. Uh, Which people get when the episodes have nothing to do with them, because along the way, this is how therapy works. You come in for A, but it turns out the issue is B or C or D. And in that exploration, we do a lot of psychoeducation. We talk a lot in a way that explains to people and then thereby to listeners why this is going on, why they're feeling this way, what tends to happen. And so you get a really, really complete arc. And so that's why we, we. we're excited about it. We're now taping season two. And in season two, we're going to have episodes devoted to following up with most people from season one to find out where they are a year later. So cool. Tell me the name of the yeah. show. It's called Dear Therapists. With Dear an S ther- at the end. With an S? Yes. With an S at the end. The therapists, because there are two of us. And you can find it anywhere you get uh, podcasts and subscribe. And we're launching season two, truly, uh, depending on when this
0: comes out, very, very soon. But Do you guys ever, for us. Uh, you ever butt heads? And, uh, you know, I, I think this way and you think, no, that's not the way to go. We don't do it overtly in
1: front because it would be disturbing for the guest for me to say, um, no, I don't think that's the direction we should go here. Uh-huh. So we we have to find again. It, this is our challenge. We have to find ways to kind of uh, let her you know finish something she's doing. And then I'll say, and now I want to ask back about this again, because I think I want to take another Turn over there. So we find ways to do it. What we hear from people is we sound remarkably people, they're always stunned to hear what do you mean you don't talk about it? You sound like you have an exact game plan, and yet we have zero game plan.
0: Wow. Uh, but, okay, a couple of final questions. What do people often get wrong about you or the kind of work you do? They they think therapists
1: tend to be boring because they tend to associate that Freudian thing of, you know, uh, somebody sitting back in their chair, silent for 45 minutes until the last minute where they go, mm-hmm, we'll continue next week. So they tend to think therapy's boring, and they tend to think therapists are boring. And an early patient once said to me, like, you must be terrible at a party. Um, this was still when I was in graduate school. And, you know, that was nice. But, but the, I, for one, um, I'm, a, I'm a well-rounded person. I used to do stand-up. Uh, for a bunch of years. I have, I write screenplays. I write novels. I have a lot of interests. Most therapists are quite well-rounded, except what you hear from them or what you see in the therapy office is not them saying like, here's all my personality. It's them being there for you. So you don't get to see that. And then you think, uh, I'm sure they're nice, but I would die on a dinner, you know, with this person because it would be like snooze all the time.
0: Got it. Because what you're seeing is you in therapy mode while they're in front of you, but you know, when you're in stand-up mode, you're in stand-up mode. Correct. Um, what is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? An unusual thing that I love, um, or absurd thing that I love, or that somebody um, would look at it and say, "God, that's weird." He likes that.
1: I don't know. I don't know what people would consider absurd about. I'm one of those people who like. I don't find anything absurd. If somebody loves something, what that does to me is it makes me very curious about why. Not because it's absurd, but it's like, tell me what you connect to there. Got and it. then I usually learn something and I go, Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. You know? Uh, so, so to me, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't think in those ways. So it's hard for me to say. But that's great. That's but, I'll, but I'll tell absurd. you
0: because baked in your answer, uh, I'll tell you one that I love and, and your, your, uh, your answer will, uh, will shed some light on this. I love DJing. I love to, I have DJing equipment and I love to mix house music. And I enjoy that, um, which led into me DJing around the country. And, but if you ask me why I love it, it's because I love sort of like being in the, the club and in the DJ booth, um, making the crowd move, but I'm alone. <laughs> yeah, but, but
1: <laughs> to me, I would never question that because to me, the thing that would seem extremely empowering is that making the crowd move. Right? I mean, that's almost like the Pied Piper that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're playing the flute and and all the crowd is responding to you.
0: To me, that seems, that seems fun. That's exactly what it was. Okay, perfect. Are there any opinions, uh, and we'll go over two more minutes. Are there any opinions or positions that you've had maybe in the last couple of years where you, you say, you know, I used to think this way. I don't think that way anymore. I've changed, I've changed how I view that. Does anything come to mind there? Um, I, I will say this. Um, In the social justice movement,
1: as someone who um, has always felt, not just that I'm not a racist, but I'm an ally uh, to, because I truly do not see skin color, I see as a psychologist, I see people's personality stands out way more than, than their skin color does. And yet, in my conversations over this past year, and in the reading that I've done, I am constantly having new aha moments about the experience of black people and people of color that make perfect sense. I just hadn't thought about them before. Mm. I hadn't thought about before that a, a black man who's of a certain size, um, this, someone said to me like, um, what, uh, like, when I step into an elevator, I put on a smile because if I don't, I get a lot of attention from the other people in the elevator. So I smile to seem non-threatening and I have to do that every time I step into an elevator. And wow. it's one of those moments where it makes perfect sense, but until you hear that that is the burden we're putting on people, it doesn't occur to you the, the level of granularity with which this is an issue that impacts people's lives. And so there've been so many moments over the past
0: year of I've had like, oh my goodness. Um, so yeah. I love that. Okay, last question. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me?
1: What's in all the interviewing that you've done recently, what's one thing that you've learned that really made you like, oh, my, that really changed something for you? Like, I, you know, that really made you like think for a lot afterwards
0: Two come to mind. The first one is uh, I did an interview with a guy who created um, a television show called uh, Everybody Loves Raymond's. And his name is uh, Phil, Phil Rosenthal. He also has a Netflix show called Somebody Feed Phil. And he's a guy that sort of like grew up in uh, the Bronx and, you know, didn't have a pot to piss in and came up with this idea to to do this show. And it's now in syndication and he's, he's made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from the show. And he... Is probably one of the happiest, most uh, real, authentic people that I've met in my life. And he, if I'm if I'm taking a, a, a trip somewhere, I'll get a, a, a little video from him saying, "Have fun on your trip." If I do something, he'll send me a message. He's busy. He just won the he won an Emmy uh, an Emmy last year he's got a really, really busy life. And yet he effortlessly is so interested in connecting and doing it in a meaningful, thoughtful, um, sincere way that it always puts me in check to realize that, you know, the amount of, I don't know, mess Direct messages I get or questions I get or whatever that I am never ever too big to to not treat somebody with the level of respect and kindness that he has at the at this point in his life so. I don't know if that makes and, sense, but that's no. First I thing love again.
1: that, and, I, and and you know when I encountered that, I encountered that when I meet people. I meet a lot of people, and, and certainly I met more people before COVID. Um, but yeah. theoretically, I meet a lot of people, and I sometimes will meet someone who seems the most down-to-earth and real and authentic person, and then I'll find out that they're wealthy with a bee, and that always impresses. Wealthy me.
0: with a bee, I, I love that. I never heard that before. That's so good.
1: Uh, but, but you the, know what I mean? That I like, of course, every right to be standoffish to be this. And yet I would never have guessed that about them. I'm always like, wow, that's impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one is a, a guy. Um, he's got a, his name is Garrett white. He's got a, uh, a program, uh, called the warrior's way. And he basically trains men to, to level lots of areas of their lives. And, uh, he, has sort of like sectioned it off into body being balance and business and he said you know look men they either they they're focusing more on their body but but their business is going down they're focusing more on their business and their body is going down they're focusing you know they're meditating all of the time which is the being but you know the other areas and so putting it all together where you're focusing on your body, you're being the balance and the balance is the wife and the kids um, and your business requires in his, or, or, or what's helpful for that is to gamify it. So he's got this little thing that he does where, you know, if you, if you work out, you get a half a point. If you drink a green smoothie, you get a half a point. If you send your wife a text, you get a half a point. You, you send your kid a text, you get... So he's got all these little things. And at the end of the day, he calls that the core four, and he calls it the core four before the door. So before you, you hit the door for the day, when you're doing your morning routine, that you put some momentum, even a little, into each of those areas. So at the end of the day, so, you know, if the world goes to shit today, at least I connected with the wife and the kid and my body and and I meditated and I journaled. And so that was, that was like a quick life-changing thing. I, yeah, I like it. It's a very easy way to keep tabs on, on, on different aspects of your well-being. well being. Um, well I want you to be my new best friends if you'll let me uh, because I could literally talk to you for hours you're just that kind of guy and i'm i'm so grateful um that you took the time to do this you know when you when you get over 10 million views on ted uh you you could easily you know be that guy and and you're not and uh i really really enjoyed this so thank you for taking the time and we will link everything up in the show notes
1: thank you so much it's been my pleasure and a great fun interview for me thank you